Welcome back to The Stripe, the world's first and only podcast dedicated to the face-off position. I'm your host, Greg Arenlian, and I'm excited to give you weekly updates, predictions, and behind-the-scenes breakdowns of the PLL's face-off athletes. This episode features Whip Snake's face-off man, Joe Nardella. Joe had a fantastic inaugural summer last season, showing off not only his ability to win face-offs, but he led all PLL face-off men in points as well. Known as the Disruptor, Joe's combination of athleticism and gritty blue-collar play made him a force on his way to becoming a 2019 PLL champion. Joe, thanks for meeting me at the Stripe, my man. Greg, I'm real happy to be here. Not only am I super pumped that we now have a podcast for face-off specialists, but excited to kind of dive into some of the things that I've heard on other uh, on the other previous interviews and really excited to chat today. Yeah, man. It's awesome having you on here. And, and one of the cool things about having this show now is that we can really kind of take all the face-off guys in the PLL and give them the platform you guys deserve and talk about what makes you guys unique. It's funny, when we started talking about how we wanted to create this show and we wanted to present different face-off guys they were like hey why don't you just like give us a list of like strengths and weaknesses and i was like these are the best 10 face-off guys on earth like every single one's be like uh fast hands uh like athletic so i you know jake watts has been incredible creating these next level statistics that we're going to go over because as you know we've been kind of relegated in the past to like oh face-off percentage and ground balls but that doesn't tell the whole story at all so um First, let's just go over some stuff because I just want to hear, like, what was your opinion of the 2019 PL season just playing in that first ever inaugural year? I honestly thought it was the best lacrosse experience I've had to date. Not only, bet, like, you know, better than any pro experience we've had in the past, but I loved it even more so than college just because of the speed of the game, the condensed field for faceoffs. I mean, you got the wing guys involved so much more. Um, the distance from the midfield line to the arc being shorter, I think just caused and created a ton of chaos, which led to so much more transition than we were used to. And I know you and I both had teams that were very transition heavy. So we were up and down a lot more than we probably have been in the past. Yeah. hundred percent. And, and just so folks know, if you don't know, the PLL has its own unique face-off rules that in my opinion are the best in the game. If you haven't heard them or, or understand the differences between those and the NCA rules, just go to episode zero where we break down all the bullet points of the PLL rules. Now, speaking of the PLL rules, balls lined up higher towards a scoop, wings are closer, and the field is shorter. Now, when I think of somebody who would benefit greatly from that, you're definitely the first person on my mind. I mean, we have, you're an offensive stalwart, so you understand how to take the ball to the rack. You're a chaotic counter specialist, and you, so you're able to bring your wings into the play. How much more did you feel comfortable with that setup than, you know, previous versions of face-off rules that you've played with? I thought it just evened out the playing field and took any, like, BS out of the picture, you know, with the, the stripes being there you had your and the ref's foot you're forced to line up exactly the same every time and it you just cut to the chase there's no like moving this way moving that way and you know when we were playing in the past everybody's trying to get a little bit of like a half inch here or half inch there and how can you blame somebody we all want to win so bad so i thought that completely eliminated you know any gray area it made it easier for the officials and i just think it's it's sped up the face-off mechanics and you know time from whistle to somebody having possession which i thought was awesome yeah trevor touched on that in our interview as well he said one of the big things that guys you know have a complaint with is okay you you score it's like nfl football right you score a touchdown you want that time where guys can celebrate the touchdown get excited you know if we just pulled the ball out of the goal and went you know right back into play it would be like basketball where you can't really be excited even attackman could understand that but 
getting the faceoff set up takes too long sometimes because, like you said, guys are kind of jostling for positions. In the NCAA, there's actually like uh, no penalty for consistently leaning or gripping up on the stick and having the ref have to straighten you back out. And, and people hate that. You know, even faceoff guys were like down there for 30, 40 seconds. We're like, this is so lame. In the PLL, not only do we have those stripes, those perpendicular stripes to line up to, but the refs literally have their foot on the line. And I got to give it to Matty Palin and, and Abbott because they actually just came up with that on their own because they yeah. thought that would just be really fast. So we would line up and literally you went down and put the top of your head right up against the ref's foot and the ball was already on a blue marker and it was consistent and we were in and out of there in seconds. Um, sometimes too, to uh, not something that we really liked because we were on scoring streaks and we were you know, trying to guess yeah. for air, but you know, they were like, let's go, dude, you're supposed to be in shape. Yeah, yeah let's so, go, get it going. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, absolutely. And I think it played really well to your strengths, man. I, I, you know, I tell people all the time, I saw games in the PL last year where you would see a guy win 80% of his clamps and go 51%. And you would see games where a guy wouldn't win a single clamp and go 51%. And that just doesn't happen in the NCAA. The field's too big. There's too much space from the wings to the man uh, at the X. And, and I think that we kind of eliminated that with all the PL rules. So NCAA, once again, pay attention. All right. So. Let's take a look here because your stats tell an awesome story. Last year, um, overall, you were 53%. You were 50% against starters, and that's overall faceoff percentage. So people look at faceoff percentage and they go, well, how do they actually see who wins a faceoff? After the whistle blows, it's the first team to scoop up possession. And when the referees yell possession, not only does that count as a faceoff win, but it also allows the players on the offense and the defensive side of the field to come out of the arc and they're allowed out. Uh, before that happens, only the three players on each faceoff unit are the ones who are allowed in the middle of the field. So you were 50% against starters, 53 overall. Your clamp percentage was 39% against overall and 35% against starters. And that's where you know we see the disparity in that between your clamp percentage and your faceoff percentage. And I've always told people I would much rather, if I was a coach or a player, I would much rather see a guy who has a higher overall faceoff percentage than clamp percentage than the other way around just because that means that I don't have to worry about you getting gassed if you don't win the, the clamp on the whistle. Yeah. Where does that come from in your game? Are you planning – is it mostly because you don't care about staying in there on a grind or is it you're so confident in your athleticism that you know you can disrupt and it's a lot easier to do that? I think it's a little bit of both, right? Like a lot of guys <clears throat> pull the ball out to bad spots when they feel like they're under pressure. And you know this better than anybody. So it's like yeah. rather than maybe take that one extra turn, like in a couple games I try to do, you know, i.e. the games against Farrell where I think I have enough and I try to rotate, I put myself in a really bad position to be able to con at least contest the ground ball. And when you got guys like Mike Earhart on the wings, if you can contest the ground ball, you know, your percentage might skyrocket a little bit and it's no longer or a 50-50. Um, but I also think it, it, part of it plays into just like the history of you know, me starting face-offs late. I kind of came into it as a freshman where you know, Chris Mattis taught me for the first time I ever learned as a freshman at Rutgers, and he smacked us in the alumni <laughs> game. And like our coach is like, somebody's got to win one. And, you know, I felt like I've always been pretty good at ground balls given my hockey background. And that was just an area I tried to focus more so on than clamping because I wasn't great at clamping in my freshman year. And then, you know, as I kind of got older and learned a little bit more about the techniques and how I should be practicing, um, I did get better. But I felt like if I could, 
you know, steal back a couple faceoffs a game, like say two out of 20, you know, now you're talking about a 10% stat boost. So that's always been my focus more so than clamping. And, you know, sometimes it works out other times, not so much, but I think overall it's a, it's been a good strategy that's catered to my strengths. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and I know from experience, you and I have, have bashed heads plenty of times in the pro ranks and you're just a very frustrating person to go against because most people, when you clamp the ball, you're like, and I'm out of here. Yeah. But with you, it's like, as soon as I clamp the ball, I'm like, oh man, I'm only like one third of the way out of the woods on this. And, and, you know, I tell people all the time when I see you, uh, you know, I've, I've have played against generations of guys and you are by far the hardest person to game plan for, because I feel like you're a constant tweaker. You constantly change yeah. your stance a little bit each year. You kind of add a counter every year. I mean, you and I have gone head to head where you've lined up knee down against me. I remember one game I went down and you just stood up. You weren't even raking. You like on the whistle, you <laughs> stood up. I was like, this guy is nuts. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I, and you know what, man? And that, that tells me so much about you as a person that you're willing to just go and work on something new and try it based on your competition. Because I really feel like, especially the younger kids, um, you know, you and I are both coach faceoffs and. A lot of times kids will only do one thing, uh, whether they're going 20 for 20 or 0 for 20. And I think that's a refreshing thing that, that kids need to see. When you are doing that, is it because you're looking for different styles to try out? Or do you see little deficiencies or strengths in a guy that you're going to go against and you want to try to tailor yourself towards that? I think you always want to be versatile. I mean – you, you and I both know better than anyone. You want to teach kids how to face, like do a couple different things really well just in case they need to. But I do think, like you said, as you scout and watch guys, you may pick up on things like or patterns on whether like why they win or why they lose. And if, you know, they're winning for a certain reason, you obviously want to stop that because that's a strength of theirs. And if they're losing for a certain reason that you see over and over, you want to try to exploit that. So I think it's, it's kind of twofold. I have tried to, you know, through scouting target some of those things and, areas where I may be able to have a little bit more success. Um, and, you know, game to game, you got to be able to change it up because you're not always going to have your best day, especially like the guys we're going against all the time. Like if you're a millisecond slow on one day, like you better get ready, man, because it can yeah. be a long day. Yeah. And that's the thing. And speaking of that, I mean, we're talking eight to 10 best face-off guys on earth right now are in the PLL and it's not even close. And when you look at that, when people say, you know, oh, you know, Tommy Kelly has 77% on his on his clamps and Joe Nardell is 39% on his clamps. Oh, man, like Joe must have slow hands. No, it, do not think that. If you're a listener right now, get that out of your head. Joe does not have slow hands. All right. I can attest to it because on the very fa last face off of my career, he smoked me in overtime. OK, that's not that he has slow hands. It's just that when you are that athletic, you're not panicking to get to the ball. And I think that, you know, the common denominator, if you've been listening to our podcast so far, every interview, Joe gets brought up as the toughest dude to go against post whistle. And, and, and that's the proof is in the pudding. I mean, when you look at the clamp percentage slash face off percentage for Joe, you know, we, let's look at your, your series matchups that you're going to go against. Um, you know, archers, you were 61% against them overall. Atlas, you were 37% against them overall. Chaos, 58% against them last year. Redwoods, you're going to be 60%. Um, I think that stat is mostly against guys that are long poles and stuff because we're going to get about the yeah, guy. Yeah, like Don maybe. 
Yeah. So that's guys that guys you're going against this year. And that's why it's cool to look at these numbers because we can see literally, you know, exactly who you're going to be going against and what your, what your, what your schedule is coming up against those exact same people. Um, now the Redwoods don't have BK anymore. So if they were going with an LSM, they're going to go with John Sexton, but they have a two headed yeah. rookie monster. Um, so let's make, let's, let's go over these, these best and worst games last year. And let's take a look at, you know, what you're going to tweak or change coming up. When we look at week five, well, week five against the Redwoods, I can, I can tell you from, from experience, that was a painful day for Greg. Yeah. Um, you were, <laughs> now you were 78% in that game. You were 59% on your clamps. Okay. Now, most people in that game, because I, I tore my hamstring early in the game, most people would be like, oh, let's try to get the clamp and then just keep Greg on the field. But this goes a little bit more to your understanding of the position where you said, rather than try to keep the guy on the field and make this longer than it needs to be, you went to a click and drag move that I just couldn't push off with my leg and handle. Yeah, And that's yeah. that's just knowing the position. You completely changed your move. Uh, when did you notice that was working? <laughs> uh, as soon as I saw you kind of pull up, um, and you know, sometimes it happens like where you get your bottom edge under the ball and you just got to get it out because you think yeah. the guy's going to rotate you off it. So I think the first time that happened, that's like, you had beat me on a couple rotations where we were pretty close on the initial first move. And I was like, I had to try to get this out or he's going to rotate me off the ball by getting my shoulder. And then once you, you know, you're kind of limping off the field, I was like, well, if I can get the ball to space, he's not going to be able to push off that leg and scoop it up quickly. So I was able to, you know, push it out. I'm sorry for praying on you a little bit while you were banged up. But, yeah, but, you know, I was just trying to get the ball out to space as quickly as possible. And I think you're one of the best guys at defending rakes. So I couldn't just come in and try to rake it out quickly. I had to at least attempt to go for the clamp and try to get that bottom rail underneath. Yeah, and and just so folks know, like, you know, we're in a competitive environment. Joe and I are rivals. We both want to win. Uh, you know, the Whip Snakes Redwoods rivalry was <laughs> yeah. created very early. It was pretty awesome. And yeah, I was hurt. But, you know, just so you guys know, Joe would rip the ball out, win a face off. I would limp off the field and literally the next face off, Joe would be like, man, I'm sorry about this. <laughs> you know? but you got to do what you got to do to win. And, and I was actually impressed that you found the move. You went with it because I was more like, oh, man, like this guy, we're going to go in these slow rotations. I'm going to try to, you know, win back a few. But you, you made the right move. Now, when we look at worst games, um, you were 41% against the Chrome in week eight. And 41% in the PLL is nothing. That's, you know, that's that's like a one or two face-offs away from being 50%. It's not a big deal. Um, so when you look at that versus the Chrome, that was week eight. That, that was against um, Connor Farrell. What made that matchup a little tough for you? I think Farrell does a great job of just driving into the ball, right? He's super strong. He doesn't really rotate. and I, I've had a lot of success rotating in my career, so maybe at times I've been a little bit stubborn to stick with it, whereas maybe I should have aborted on clamps um, a little sooner. But with Connor, I felt like I was getting to the ball. So that's, I think, where the stubbornness derived from was me thinking I had enough, like, enough of it. But when you go against somebody that strong, it's a little bit different. You're not pushing him off the ball. If you get to his shoulder, he's strong enough to just hold there. And he did a great job, like you're saying, kind of holding me off by sticking his foot out and then yanking the ball to the left. And again, I was out of position and credit to him. He's a great faceoff guy. There's a reason he broke the Division II record. Like he knows what he's doing. Um, and I think bigger guys in general, I like him, Trav, you at times, I've struggled clamp-wise against guys like that because you guys are so good at getting your weight into the ball and reacting to the whistle. And, you know, that's obviously been an area of focus in the offseason. 
Yeah, and that's you know, uh, Connor two sixty last year. It's a lot of yeah. dudes. <laughs> that's a lot. Of and juice. he had a he had a pretty wiry head. He used the Mark two F very um very like kind of flimsy sidewall, but it maintains its shape really really well. And he did that good job of most guys will rotate on you and go around you and try to pull the ball out towards your right shoulder. Yeah. Connor would yeah. drive in and then step in front of you and use his bottom sidewall to rip the ball out because his sidewall was thinner. Um, and that seemed to be the the way he got around that for you. But, um, you know, knowing what his moves were, I think someone like yourself studying that film is going to be prepared for that this summer coming up. What kind of adjustments are you making based on weaknesses that you saw in your own game last summer just overall? I think body position. A lot of times I'm taking my like step up field or across the midfield line with my left foot to get into that rotation in an effort to kind of get to my opponent's shoulder. I think I do that too early sometimes. So I've tried to really just commit to that first move because like you alluded to earlier, if I don't win the initial clamp, it's not the end of the world for me. I have the luxury of being able to steal some back. So rather than rotate, maybe I go first move and try to counter a little bit also. I mean, with a lot of the, the college rule changes in practicing with a lot of college kids, I feel like I've added the stand up finally like confidently feel like i'm pretty good at standing neutral grip um so that could be something you know maybe i throw out there keep guys guessing a little bit you know you've used it against people and it you know throws people for a loop if they don't practice against it yeah yeah it gives you a bottom sidewall dominant motion and and when joe talks about the standing neutral grip that's when you're standing up on two feet you're holding the stick traditional uh instead of double over moto grip and that adds a whole another tree of moves and the NCAA is, is is trying to creep towards only allowing that as the standard way of facing off and disallowing knee down, which we don't generally agree with. But uh, when you practice both things, it doubles your the ability to move. So when you have a guy who's a counter expert like Joe, who's now adding this stand up, uh, this is a whole other thing that guys are going to have to scout now. Uh, it's it's incredibly useful against long poles too, because Definitely. a lot of guys, a lot of times, guys will face off on a knee against a long pole, and all you're doing is asking yourself to get hacked a couple times on your way up to your feet. So this will actually be able to make things a little bit easier, which I'm sure you're looking forward to because you guys are playing in a championship series. You're not playing a long season. So as the only face-off guy on the whips, I'm sure you'll take as many, you know, opposition false starts and easy pinch and pops that you can get to try to maintain your, your ability. Have you talked to uh, Stags about who's going to take the reps in, in case you need a blow or if you false start? Yeah, so we've talked about this at length. Actually, Coach Staggs was thinking about drafting somebody. He had his eyes on Peyton Smith, who the Redwoods got, but they selected before us, so there wasn't really much that we could do. Um, however, Joe McCallion faced off at Penn, and I think he was a 50-plus guy um, for the majority of his career, and he was standing up. So him and I have done some Zoom stuff. We've chatted a couple times. He's taken videos of some reps that he's got with local people in Philly. So I think Joe will be our number two, and he's just a guy who, you know, can play offense can play defense he's a tough player so he's a great guy to like kind of sink into that roster spot is like almost like your football like athlete slot mm. where he can do do it all almost and be kind of a, a stop gap if we need him yeah mccallion actually reminds me of duke's current uh, uh well i guess he'll be a returning senior again brian smith um yeah. who at one point was an all-tournament face-off guy he was an all-american two-way midfielder in high school he plays the wing and I feel like McCallion can fit into that spot. And then you also add Bernhardt, who is probably, you know, borderline the most athletic guy in the league yeah. uh, and has yeah. no problem taking reps. And then, you know, all tournament, all world uh, MVP, Mike Earhart taking face off as a long pole doesn't hurt either. 
So you guys got a really good group of dudes that can fill in for you if need be. Um, now, here's the other question. You you led the PLL in, in points as a face-off guy last year. What do you find generally creates your opportunities as a, as a face-off guy? You know, most people look at it and be like, hey, he's pinching and popping and going down and shooting. I think it's caused by the field dimensions more so than anything and the wing guys being close. And, you know, when you do have guys like Jake Bernhardt and Mike Gerhardt on the wings who love to push – um, and Bryce Young, like we've been able to move the ball quickly off the ground and attack and unsettled. And a lot of teams sub their face off guys off and we get six on five. So I think more of our transition opportunities are not like traditional four on threes. Like maybe I had one or two goals like that, but I think most of our points come from five on fours and six on fives because we practice those and we're organized with our ground ball play. We always talk about, and I, you know, when I was a college lacrosse coach, I would always tell the kids, when you scoop the ball up, you want to try to make a triangle, have one outlet in front, one outlet behind. And if you can move the ball twice off the ground, you're probably going to be in pretty good shape to push transition if the other team's out of position, which a lot of times, you know, guys get mad that they lose 50-50 ground balls. They're going to chase a little bit, get a little undisciplined, and that's a perfect time to attack. Yeah, yeah. Picking your spots is huge, and that's that's absolutely right. If you watch the film, Joe, most of Joe's points come off of like six on fives. And generally speaking, when you have wings that are offensive minded as a faceoff guy, there's a couple different opportunities that guys usually don't take advantage of. First off, most faceoff guys after they lose a faceoff, they'll run off the field blindly, and you get caught up in it as a as a Faceoff guy myself, when you play two or three weeks in a row of no matter what, faceoff guy runs off the field to get the offensive guy on. You get in that pattern. And even though I know Joe so well from playing against him, every time I play against Joe, maybe that first or second faceoff loss, I always just start running off the field. And I'm a 13-year vet, and he's dunked on me because of it. And, you know, it happens because you get caught up in that chasing the guy off the field part. And Joe just hangs out. He's like, cool, man, see ya. Run off the field. I'm going to get an apple right here. Uh, and then also uh, a lot of times when there's a call, if there's a push call or a loose ball call or an out of bounds call, we saw multiple times last year where Joe's opponent faceoff guy would go palms up to the ref and Joe's scooping and he's already six yards down the field. And, you know, I think you're just a master of just next play. Let's keep it going. And you guys have the athleticism to get back on D if it doesn't work out. So, you know, that's your strength, man. That's something that in a championship format, if guys are in a hurry to get off the field because they want to save energy and they're thinking long-term throughout the whole group play, they're going to get buried by you. So it's something that guys are going to have to watch out for. Uh, when we look at the matchups, it's pretty interesting because uh, you're right. It's it's funny. Athletic guys you have no issue with. Uh, like, you know, Brendan Fowler, you were 6 for 7 against last year. It's 85%. Um, Tommy Kelly, even though he has really fast hands, it didn't matter. Uh, you were 54% against him over the course of the season. Um, what, what, what do you think you match up really well? Why do you think you match up so well against those two particular guys? I'm not really sure. You know, Fowler's got been a guy who has given me trouble at points in the past. Like we've had some battles like in college and pro. Um, and I think maybe just, he wasn't in as much of a rhythm clamp wise, um, as he could have been. And not that I think my exits are necessarily the best. That's another area I need to get better at. But if I win the clamp and can put it somewhere where I have a little bit of an advantage, um, more often than not, I'm probably getting the ground ball because I don't miss a lot of first-time GBs. It's something I practice a lot. But I think with TK, um, sometimes he gets – 
uh, he like exits too early where he should be a little bit more patient. I don't want to give him too much info because we got to play him. And he knows like I'm buddies with him yeah. too. But right. If he's a little more patient, he's one of the best, like he could be the best guy in the world because he's so great with his clamp. Um, so yeah. I think maybe those two things, just Fowler not being as much in a rhythm with his clamps and then TK just rushing a little bit on me or wait, like, you know, staying down there too long and giving me opportunities to counter. Yeah, I, TK actually touched on that in our interview. He talked about his exits. And so folks who are new time, you know, first time listeners, when you face off, yes, you want to try to clamp and redirect the ball immediately so that you can pick it up. But you get one step. The referee, once he deems that you have control of the ball and you've clamped over top of it with your sidewall, he, you have one step to exit. If you hold it longer than that, it's called withholding and it goes to the other team. And TK talked about how with the shorter dimensions, it took him time to acclimate. He wasn't off to a great start last year, so he was frustrated. And I think, you know, he talked about how he's lost weight this summer. He's preparing to do that. And this is what's so cool about these matchups. Uh, in fact, it's it's kind of why I'm glad I'm not playing this summer, because all of you guys are taking what you could have improved on and you're improving on it. So I think I got out at the right time. Uh, when you look at some of your worst matchups from last season, some that some that you're probably going to be excited about to go against. Uh, Connor Farrell, uh, you were 35 and 23% and then 41% against him, uh, respectively in those three matchups. Um, what's something that you're planning on, on looking at when you go against Connor Farrell? Is there something that you noticed on film that he does really, really well that you want to try and neutralize? Or is there something that I know you don't want to give away too much because you want to prepare, uh, but is there something you could tell folks that are listening, you know, what you plan on doing differently this time around? Yeah, you look at the games where he might have struggled a little bit, and I think the one that sticks out that was a shock was um, against the Archers, against Fowler and Kelly. So I think that's been the film for Farrell that you got to look at. And, you know, I think Bones Kelly has the best rake in the league. Like, he's unbelievable at surprising people with it because he'll clamp and pinch and pop you, and the next time he rakes it, and you're like, dude, this guy's just got me off a little bit. And you saw the second time we played Archers, he actually beat me head-to-head because he was mixing and matching, and he did a really good job that time. Um, so I think, you know, maybe incorporating some of the stuff Fowler and Bones were successfully able to do um, might help me out a little bit. But I think, you know, not rotating as quick and really just trying to slam my right hand into the ball like he does. And that's something, you know, we all practice. So I'm excited for it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you could tell Joe's Joe's knowledge on this, breaking the film down. This is really good stuff and stuff that you'll see, you know, to pay attention to during the, the championship series. Now, against Trevor. Everybody struggles against Trevor. So uh, you were 33, 25, and 40% uh, respectively against him. Now, as a guy who I can I can confidently say when we've gone against each other, you know, it didn't matter how I was on my clamps or not that day. I feel like we're always around the 50% mark against each other. What makes Trevor's clamp and his exit strategy uh, tougher to deal with? I think he's just so athletic and he, you know, throughout his whole college career, he had won so many clamps and saw so many different people trying to counter him so many different long poles that he's like, he's an expert at exiting because he has won so many clamps and so many guys have tried to throw like the kitchen sink at him that he's seen it all. And like, you know, I'm probably the luckiest guy in the world. I get to go against him with indoor too, five times in the last calendar year. <laughs> now, we're, now we're adding another one. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> 
Right. So, I, I mean, the first game he was like, I felt like I was pretty prepared for that game. And again, similar to Farrell, I might've rotated too early, but I think Trev was just on, you know, and when somebody's freaking on the whistle like that, it's, it's tough, especially when they're that athletic and that good at ground balls and exiting, like he's got everything right. He, there's not really many holes in his game at all. And then the second time I feel like I was able to implement a little bit of click, click and drag, try to get the ball on the ground a little bit more, hold a little bit and be more patient in my lockups to bring the wings to the party and then you know you saw more of that 40-ish percent which you know in any of our games like that's only a couple draws and doesn't hurt our team percentage-wise yeah. so that absolutely I feel like when you're you know any face-off guy in the PLL you're aiming for that you know 40 to 55 to 60 percent like if you're doing that you're doing your job you're all good everything's fine um, and when you look at your ability to segue we just mentioned the wings let's look at your wings, because I believe they're all coming back. You, you guys didn't yeah. lose any, um, uh, you know, any of the the starting wings. So you got Mike Earhart, uh, World Games MVP in 2018, 16 ground balls off the wings. You guys, as a unit, 42 ground balls off the wings last year. Um, that was uh, second in the PLL. So the wing play was huge for you guys. Ty Warner, 12 GBs. Uh, he actually yeah, had the too. most among all short sticks. He's a vacuum. And then Bryce Young, he also plays close defense, but he also plays on the wing. Stags will bump him up. Um, talk about your – because I, I think that's an important thing. Like you said, if you can – if you lose the clamp or whatever, to tie a guy up for an extra split second so that your wings can come in and be effective. How does that go with your team, like strategy-wise? What are you trying to do with your wing play once you get into a lockup? I think when we get into the lockups <clears> – <throat> and this is something like Ty Warner's – he understands these situations as good as anybody. So does Mike. And they've talked about it at length. Like, you know, we try to have our guys actually, when we're locked up, they're on the outside of their opponents, not the inside. And the hope is if I can get the ball to space or allow the other team to push the ball to space, now it's just like a little push off if they're like their top hand on their stick is kind of on the back hip of their opponent, they just kind of seal that guy in and we should have an advantage if the ball pops anywhere to space. And I think we talk about maintaining contact the entire time. And I'll say, hey guys, if I'm going to lose this one out of the lockup, I'm going to try to make them go to the right or to the left. So those guys can predict a little bit where they're going to jump so that we can keep the ball on the ground. And I think the longer this, the ball stays on the ground, um, the better chance our team has. Yeah, and it's very uh, it's indicative of the film that you guys you you spend a lot of time on this because when we break down the film, anytime I see a loose ball, and we were actually kind of laughing at about it with Fowler on the the last episode uh, or two episodes ago, when we were talking about your highlights. We're like, you know, a Joe Nardella faceoff highlight looks like a six second ground ball battle. Two guys end up on the ground somewhere. Joe's in like a TP position. Scoops a ground ball, two passes down, and then scores. And like that's like a typical Joe Nardella faceoff. And but when you watch it, there's three whip snakes there all the time, and there's one or two of the opposition. And you guys, it's almost like watching like little bobblehead soccer, you know. And it's like an amoeba going around the field. Yeah. All the kids are around the ball. That's what that's what a whip snakes ground ball off the wing looks like. And it's obvious that you guys go over and they know exactly where the ball can go, and you create places where they can pick it up. Whereas if you watch another team, a lot of times the wings are completely out of position because, you know, they'll say things like run in and box out, right? And that's what we're used to as face-off coaches. We hear a lot of like club coaches or high school coaches will be like, yeah, just get hip to hip and box out. But what Joe actually does is the same thing that I try to do and I try to teach my kids is 
use the outside shoulder. So to give you guys a visual, on a face-off, you have the wing play, and after the whistle blows, the wings are allowed to run it, right? And they're not allowed to touch the face-off guys, but they're allowed to get as close as they want. And unfortunately, a lot of times, kids are just thinking, sprint in as close as you can, and then box the other guy out. And what all that does is it causes six guys within a three-yard space, and it doesn't matter what happens after that. So what Joe has told his face, his wing guys is don't get in front of the guy because if the ball sprays wide, we're, we're in trouble. So instead, he has the, his wing stay on the outside hip of their opponent, and then that way, if Joe has to counter, he's going to force the guy into one direction so the wings know exactly where to collapse on it. If the ball comes out a little short, your wing guy is on the outside hip of your opponent, so his guys can just check, and they can steal the ball back. And if it goes long, that's when the whip snakes are at their best. Three guys peel off, they leave their dudes in the dust, and now you have an odd man rush at the offense. So it's a very smart game play, uh, game plan, especially in a smaller field. Now, let's look at some of these interesting stats because I think these really tell about who you are. Last year, you were four for four in overtime. Okay, and as somebody who who faced the consequences of Joe Nardella in my final face off of my of my professional career in overtime. Um, what makes you like? What's the mindset beforehand? Because I know a lot of people have different ideas of how they want to approach an overtime faceoff. I think you know it's it's tough because you look at that stand. I'm like, why can't I just win all the other important faceoffs <laughs> in the game too? But I think it's something about overtime. It's something about the nerves. Um, I've always loved playing in tight games. I think growing up playing hockey, it's similar to like box lacrosse. You're just playing more games than other people right and that's why the canadians are so good and so like in crunch time because they don't get nervous as much because they've mm. been there before and mm. i think because i've been in so many close games because i've like you know at Rutgers, we weren't the best when i was there because i've lost and had so many heartbreaks it's like ah the worst thing that's going to happen is we could lose right i'm going out there there's nothing nothing like holding me back i'm telling myself hey we gotta have this one and we're gonna win this game if we get the ball right and that's kind of really been my mindset i try to keep it simple and not not think about too much else the only other thing i would add is like if i don't get the clamp what am i doing what how is he exited throughout the game where is he gone the most and how can i maybe throw him off a little bit if i do not get the clamp yeah and that is a well-rounded veteran way of looking at it um the most guys would get you know i know i was that way early in my career don't talk to me it's like a kicker you know kicking an overtime field goal uh, just let me focus on what I have to do. And as I got older and as I got more experience, you're right. You, you sit there and you're like, dude, what's the worst that happens? I lose a clamp. Um, so you want to be in the team huddle. You talk to your wings. You prepare. And look, I, I, I remember it. Like, you know, the overtime faceoff in the championship, you were the fastest on the whistle that you were all, get, all day. And I didn't have a chance. And, and that's just indicative of the fact that you have been studying up. And you're right. You've been in this position so many times that you just go out and do your thing. And I think kids can learn a lot from that. Uh, when you don't make a moment bigger than it needs to be, it helps you a lot. No doubt. Um, now, the 35% win percentage after losing the clamp, okay, uh, that's the best win percentage after a lost clamp in the PLL. So your motor, your hustle, that, I mean, obviously, you know, and some folks don't understand, too. This is Joe Nardella after he blew his knee out. And what was it, 2017? 2017, last game of the year. Yeah, and and just so guys understand, like Joe was well on his way to making Team USA for that 2018 gold medal uh, run, and I was heartbroken for you when that happened. Of course, I wanted to make that team, but, dude, like you were having a great tryout, 
uh, you were looking great. And and you you were trying to score goals. I think it was you were going for your second one of the game. Um, and you blew your knee out. And that's usually – I think that's where another reason I get so upset with the whole Fogo thing because yeah. you know, guys are scarred up, beat up. I know for myself, my scars don't come from face-off. They came from the fact that I was running down the field like you know a crazy person trying to stick Gs and play offense and stuff. When you go out there and you – after you blew that knee out, I know for me, I, I look back, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Uh, it made me look at the position differently. It made me a different person. What did you learn from that experience uh, of blowing your knee out and then coming back to play? I, you know, I learned to appreciate all the little things that I had probably taken for granted, right? Like training all the time. You know, sometimes you you get caught up in like, I have to do this. No, you get to do this, right? We're professionals. We get to play. It's an unbelievable, unbelievably unique opportunity that very few people have, right? And so, like. You know, I had been coaching college lacrosse at the time and, you know, just kind of going through the monotony of working out. Like I was a division one athlete and it was almost like I was doing the same thing throughout my time at Rutgers and coaching at Harvard. Like, you know, you're just doing division one workouts and it's easy to coast or get a little bit complacent with your training when it seems to be the same. So me blowing my knee out, although it was like absolutely devastating and I'll never forget, like you know, it's the last game of the year. People are giving away all your equipment and stuff. And like, I literally was sitting there like crying, just gave every single piece of equipment, including my Jersey to the kids there. And then I walked into the locker room, like didn't dap anybody up. And I was just like, damn, like this just happened. And yeah. everyone's trying to be optimistic, but you know, on the cut, like the flip side of it, it made me appreciate all the little things like just getting to run out there and be with your teammates and your friends and, you know, not having like me, having to get up and go to physical therapy four days a week before work, I was like, all right, I'm back to appreciating what the grind is all about, right? Yeah. This is what makes guys champions, what makes people special athletes. Like you have to commit on a level like this if you ever want to put yourself in a position to do something great. So I think at the end of the day, similar to you, and I remember you text, I vividly remember you texting me about it. You're like, praying for your brother. Like, I, I know I've been there. If anything, like if you need anything, let me know. And I was like, yeah, like if someone like Greg came back and had the career that he did after hurting his knee, like there's hope for a lot of other people. And, you know, as a coach, I've seen kids do it and obviously it's devastating as well. But that's always been my message. Appreciate appreciate the process of what you're going to go through, what you're going to learn about yourself through this struggle. And it'll make you so much stronger and better. And then someday you guys are going to be able to impart this wisdom on somebody else who's going to go through it. And I think that's, that's just the biggest thing is appreciating the little things that we have and what we're able to do with our bodies and, you know, cause everything has an expiration date and we're not going to be able to do it forever. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head. I remember sending that text when I heard about it, I was devastated for you. Uh, you know, I think what gets lost sometimes, especially in the, the lacrosse training world on that stuff is that how much massive amounts of respect we all have for each other, especially in the face off eternity. Like we all, we all have respect for each other who have the guts to go out and do what we do because a lot of times what we do is a thankless position. I mean, look at the NCAA rules committee right now, right? Every day you and I have to explain why we should exist. Uh, even to friends, even to coaches that we've played for and won for, we still have to do it. And when you, when you got hurt, I was like, man, like I just felt so bad for you because I remember all the pain I went through. Uh, and the reason I, we're bringing this up is because Joe is so insanely athletic and you, you can see the training because a lot of guys will blow their knee out or get a devastating injury and just be like, yo, man, like this isn't worth it anymore. You know, like I'm not being paid a million dollars. But 
you went through it and now you're known as the guy, the, the, the hardest guy to exit against. And you know, you're putting up points. You allowed, uh, I mean, your, your whip snake scored 20 points directly after a faceoff win last year. That was by far the most in the PLL. Um, and that's not by accidents because you stayed on the field. I mean, you had 12, you were, you were directly correlated 12 of those points and you know, your team just feeds off of that. So, you know, kids at home, when they think about, you know, getting hit hurt or when something's not going your way, you know, you have two ways to look at it. You can either be down about it and complain and whine, or you can do what Joe did. You get up, dust yourself off and look for the next challenge. It's funny. I always say, you know, now that I'm retired, people ask me, like, what do you miss the most? I, I miss the crowds. I definitely miss the fans. Yeah. I'll miss that, you know, walking out on the field. But the thing I'm going to miss the most is the struggle. I just, the grind. And the anticipation of doing all the hard work that's going to pay off down the line is really the, mo- the my most memorable thing is getting into that training room and getting after it. And I think only professional athletes, especially guys like us who that aren't millionaires, yeah. uh, you know, I think that's something that we will always remember. Um, and speaking of, you know, my retirement, but you're actually one of the old guys now, man. Now that That's I'm right. I know, man, I'm getting to 27. <laughs> My little sister said it to me yesterday. She's about to move. So like we went out to dinner and stuff and she's like, brother, you're old now. And I was like, oh my God, you cannot say that. But I'm, I mean, I am getting up there. This is going to be year six as a professional. Um, and like you said, it's, you know, we spend maybe one to 5% of the time we put into this on the field on game day. Yeah. Right. It's true. It's true. And I, I actually remember uh, when players and coaches asked me about like when I played in college and I said, I had the sweetest deal in all of sports. I was a face off man and a man up guy. That's all the only two <laughs> things I did at Penn State. And I played a total of like five minutes a game. <laughs> and I was like, that's the sweetest gig you could get. <laughs> that's right. Um, now, when you look at uh, I want to I want to ask you one thing. We get you out of here. When you look at the when, when the PLL landed that Olympic time slot on NBC. And you guys are going to be now have international eyeballs on you and no, and no other sports really are going to be on TV. Everyone's starving for it, obviously, with the COVID situation. What have you thought about what it's going to be like out there in Salt Lake City in that kind of environment with, with knowing that you guys are the only sports to be watched right now and it's going to be watched in multiple countries? Does that just raise the hair on the back of your neck a little bit? Yeah, man. I mean, you know, like you think about the moments when you get on the field and that's what like motivates you to prepare. That's what like drives the discipline of getting up and doing it every day. But when you think about like the potential for our sport and what could possibly be on the horizon with the amount of eyes that are going to be watching us, it may like, it gives me the chills to think like lacrosse could finally be here. This is the biggest like set TV slate on a major network that our sport has ever had. Not to mention, we've also all had now like three and a half months where no one has really had that many like obligations to go places and people have more time to work out and train. You don't think the testosterone is going to be flowing through the vents in that place? You're out of your mind. It's going to be an outrageously competitive environment and I can't wait for the product on NBC. And, you know, they did an amazing job last year and I think they're going to, as the PLL always does, step up their game and, and dominate this like like they did last year. It's going to be sweet to see. Oh, yeah. And when you look at the announcing crew for NBC oh. PLL presentation, I mean, Brendan Burke knocked it out of the park. Ryan Boyle's phenomenal. Paul Burmeister. I mean, the, the crew that is going to be showing the world professional lacrosse is going to knock it out of the park. I'm really excited about that. 
I want to thank you a lot, Joe. Obviously, we've had a, a ton of battles on the field over the years. I respect the hell out of you. I think, you know, you're going to have a phenomenal summer. And I think, you know, the, the position's in great hands with guys like you and Farrell and Trevor. So I want to thank you a lot for meeting me at the Stripe. And I wish you the best of luck uh, in July, bud. Yeah, great, Greg. I really appreciate you guys having me on here. Look forward to catching up more as the tournament goes on. And uh, good luck with everything. Hopefully you crush those morning workouts with the little guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, training with Jax is my biggest <laughs> it's the biggest thing I get up for these days. <laughs> All right, brother. Well, have a good one, man. Yeah, thanks, guys. Later. That's going to do it for this episode of The Stripe. Thank you for tuning in, and special thanks to Joe for joining me here today. We'll be back next episode with our final team preview. I'll be speaking with Water Dogs face-off tandem Drew Simino and Jake Withers. Be sure to subscribe to The Stripe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Please rate and review with questions and subjects that you would like us to discuss. All feedback is appreciated. Once again, I'm your host, Greg Gorenlian. You can follow me at GregBeast32 on Twitter and Instagram. Can't wait to meet you next time at The Strike.